0: Welcome to Into the Sky, a podcast about the iconic Avro Vulcan XH558. I'm Martin Price, and this is season two, where you'll hear from people close to XH558, from pilots who have flown her to the volunteers who look after her, and the team who are in charge of securing her future. Join us as we explore the history of this magnificent aircraft and learn about how she will inspire the next generation of engineers through STEM education. Look into the past to improve the future. Today, I'm speaking to a volunteer, Malcolm Stainforth, or Mal, uh, as he's referred to amongst his fellow volunteers. Mal has very kindly agreed to talk to us about why he takes time out to travel from Lincoln up to Doncaster, uh, to work with the team of volunteers and hopefully share a bit about his time uh, working on the Vulcan fleet whilst in service with the uh, the RAF. Hello, Mal. Hello. Mal, let's kick off with um, something that maybe, obviously, people who don't actually know you personally, um, you're quite a tall fellow, aren't you? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you see that as an advantage or a
1: disadvantage whilst working around the Vulcan? Well, it was it was quite interesting, really. When I left nav school, the the Air Force had done one of its great things. was It, it started to train me as a navigator, and it didn't bother measuring me until the very end. And when they measured me, um, th- there was a long list of things I didn't fit. And broadly speaking, they wanted to send me to a, a fast jet posting straight away. Um, but the aircraft they wanted to send me to, I was too big for. So they then decided, well, where can we send you? And they started looking at all kinds of other aeroplanes and it was amazing the list of aeroplanes that I didn't fit. And in the end, they turned around and said, well, you fit a Vulcan, how about flying that? And I thought, okay, fine, let's go. So the Vulcan wasn't your choice then? Oh no, not at all. It was the Air
0: Force's choice. Well, it was sort of the Air Force's choice. Right. So what would have been your first choice? My first choice was Buccaneer. Right. So... After graduating from nav school, the, as I said, the Vulcan wasn't your first choice of aircraft. You've just explained there, of course, how you ended up in the Vulcan itself. You joined the V-Force in 1976, 101 Squadron. Is that correct? That's correct. Now, you say in, in uh, conversations that you joined as a nav plotter, which uh, was unusual. So why? what was so unusual about you being made a
1: nav plotter? In the Vulcan, there are two navigators. One, a nav radar, one, a nav plotter. Generally speaking, most people who come out of nav school start as a nav radar. Uh, the beauty of that is that you concentrate purely on operating the radar and all the bits and pieces that go with operating the radar. And the less kind people say that because of the, uh, the, the, the pulse repetition frequency of the radar, you only do five seconds work in a five hour salty, but I'll let you work that one out for yourself. The plotter's role is much more a a role of running. You you basically run the aircraft and you run the sortie on behalf of the captain of the aeroplane. And so typically I used to come in four hours before takeoff and plan everything that we needed to do for all the people on on the aircraft in the next sortie. Now, in the V-Force, it was perceived that that was a job that needed to be done by somebody who'd got some time on the aeroplane and therefore... The standard plan was that you did a NAV Radar's job first and you then did the plotter's job afterwards. For reasons various, I was just one of the few who was selected to be a first tourist NAV plotter. There are about 10 of us in the in the uh, the, the length of the V-Force history who did it.
0: So what you're saying is that the, the NAV Radar is like an apprenticeship for the NAV plotter, is that what you're trying to say?
1: Yeah, it, I wouldn't say a direct apprenticeship, but knowing what's happening on the radar side makes being a plotter easier right so if you go straight into the plotters job you've almost got to learn two roles as you're going through the ocu
0: right okay yeah
1: so would you say
0: that being made in nav plotter almost straight away was an enjoyable job was it were you pleased that you were made nav plotter straight away
1: I've got nothing to compare it with, so it's very difficult to answer. But looking back on it, I am extremely pleased I went straight into the nav plotter's job because it was a much more natural job for me to do. I always regard myself as one of the last few classic navigators that the RAF trained. And the plotter's job was very much a classic navigator's job, as well as being a crew management job. So you think you found
0: being a nav plotter would have been more interesting, well, was more interesting than being just NAV radar? Absolutely, yeah. Right, okay, yeah, I see where you're coming from. So the, the aircraft that you were flying in at the time, it, was it the B-2?
1: I flew in the, uh, the, 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 the B-2 with the 300 series engines. Yeah. So they were producing about 20,000 pounds of thrust each. So, you know, you were sat on the end of the runway with somewhere in the order of £80,000 of thrust available behind you.
0: Wow. So, yeah, a little bit more output than uh, than the Series 2 engines, is that Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you spent three years as part of the Vulcan crew, which I can only imagine in that time you you became quite a close-knit group, would you? Because yeah, it's
1: a small crew, isn't it? Yeah, it is. The, the, the way the V-Force operated at the time, you, you operated what were known as constituted crews. And so the captain of the aircraft and the two navigators always flew together on operational sorties. Now, we were constituted with a co-pilot and an AEO, but if push came to shove, you could actually go and do the operational job with a different AEO and a different co-pilot. And without going into too much detail, the reason that was, was that, quite a lot of our time in the V-Force was spent doing target study for operational targets. And the captain and the two navigators had to be absolutely au fait with the targets. Right. So, again, without going into too
0: much detail, because, because obviously you were a, a, a small group, is there any particular memories that you can share with us? Well, you know, maybe just some a, a funny story of some description that happened whilst you were part and parcel of the
1: Vulcan crew? Well, I'll I'll give you two answers to this, all right? The first one is fortunately brief, and we were flying one day. As we're coming to the end of the sortie, the radar unit said we've just had a request for someone to go and photograph a ship which is discharging its tanks in the North Sea. And quite often, uh, oilers used to clean their tanks out with seawater and just dump everything over the side. They didn't have a Coast Guard airplane to go and photograph it. And so we normally came off the end of a sortie with a fair amount of fuel. And so we said, yeah, we'll go and do it. And again, because of our radar, it's relatively easy for us to scan a large area of the sea and pick what seems to be the most likely targets. And we very, very quickly found this uh, th- this ship discharging. Now... The Vulcan um, in operational mode had a downwards-looking camera in the in the uh, bomb bay, and we actually use that for assessing bombing targets. But because we had the downward-looking t- camera, uh, we were able to go, and we found the ship, and we flew down the trail of discharge, turned round, and then with the camera on, flew back up the trail of discharge back to the ship, and. Without going into too much detail, we just made sure that we got the name of the ship on the on the on the picture, and that was great. And we went home, and we thought we'd done a jolly good job, and what have you. And two days later, my captain, who was a squadron leader, and my nav radar, who was a squadron leader, both took me into an office and said, "Malcolm, we'd rather you didn't talk about this incident again." Why? I thought we committed some security breach or something. And they said, "Actually." It was a honey wagon and they were discharging shit. (laughs) (laughs) And the other one I'll give you is altogether a bit more serious. We were coming out of Cyprus one day on our way back to the UK. And one of the things that we used to do in Cyprus was, as you probably know about Cyprus, it's an an island where you can grow something fresh just about every day of the year. And so we quite often used to go to the fruit shop as we were leaving and buy baskets of, of fruit which we put in the nose of the uh, aeroplane. And of course, as soon as we got up to height, cabin temperature went down and, and, you know, it stayed cool and fresh. And this was great until we got to the top of climb. and The co-pilot laid out the impressed, which is the uh, pot of money that we had to travel with for, you know, spending on the, um, you know, the provisioning of the crew and what have you. And he got all the papers lined out on the cockpit when suddenly an engine fire warning light came on. And so the co-pilot, who normally had quite a deep voice, said, I need fire number two, um, fully high-pitched. And of course, bang, bang, uh, they hit the fire extinguishers. And about 30 seconds later, he said, fire in number one. Bang, bang, hit the fire extinguishers. Meanwhile, I'm looking up my map. And I said, okay, straight ahead, 150 miles. We're going into Suda Bay. Ayo, mayday, mayday, mayday. So we called Mayday and the air traffic unit just cleared everything from underneath us and we went down into Suda Bay. As we're going down into Suda Bay, the number three engine fire warning light came on. This is getting very serious. And then somebody said, this isn't right. And it turned out to be a malfunction of the engine fire detection unit. However, by now we've pumped two lots of fire extinguishers into two engines and shut them down. And so restarting them wasn't a good idea. So to cut a long story short, we landed at Suda Bay. Unfortunately, landing at Suda Bay at that time wasn't a good idea because the Greeks and the Turks were fighting. And Suda Bay was at the time a very secret operational Greek base. And as we landed, they noticed that we had a camera in the nosewheel bay. So we taxied into dispersal, and I'm normally the first one out of the aeroplane and as I stepped down the ladder, I was met with a rifle. Basically, the, uh, the captain of the airplane was whisked off and he had to do some smart talking and uh, everything was fine. The funny side of it was we now have a nose bay of a Vulcan full of fruit on a pan where the pan temperature was slowly rising above 40 degrees. And persuading the Greeks to give us a fridge to put all this fruit in when we'd landed on one of their secret bases, was very amusing.
0: <laughs> I was just beginning to wonder what was going to be happening to that fruit with the temperature, <laughs> etc. I thought he was going to tell us that it was the fruit that had caused the problems with the, uh, the fire warning
1: systems. Now, the, if you remember, if you look in the nose wheel bay of the Vulcan, Taft may have shown you the fire detection box is on the forward edge of the bomb bay. But yeah. a, lot of, a lot of the hot air between the engines goes very close to the fire detection box if you get a hot air leak it just starts sensing an engine fire oh right right
0: so after your time with the uh, with 101 squadron um you then converted to fast jets was it any particular type of jet that you actually converted to
1: yeah it was a bit longer than that i did a tour as a nav instructor um, back at fittingly and then i converted to the phantom and again the story of that was quite simple. When they measured me again, they decided that I did, probably wasn't going to fit a tornado. And so, on the basis that phantoms had been built for great big Texans, they put me in it. I just fitted.
0: So, when you say just, cuz it, it's it, is it mainly your legs that was the yeah. problem? A- I
1: have a, I, if you want to know the exact detail, I have a very long knee to bum length. And what that normally means is in most aeroplanes that if you're not careful, your knees hit the forward arch of the canopy as you come out. And so they they, they do have to be quite careful. The other problem is if you've got very long legs, ideally your the thighs need to sit on the seat so that when you pull the handle, the seat doesn't accelerate into your thighs. And for my entire Phantom Tour, I just accepted the fact that my legs were probably going to be hurting quite a lot after I'd ejected it, if it ever happened.
0: And thankfully, it never did.
1: Thankfully, it never did. <laughs> although, again, I, although, again, I came very close
0: once. Oh, did you? Right. That's another conversation. Some Absolutely. Of this, but yeah. So, 2017, you found yourself as a volunteer with us at 558, starting as a tour guide. It must have been some time since you was leaving the Vulcans to joining 558 so what was it that made you want to volunteer for this project and you know i mean when there's so many other projects out there some that's maybe even nearer to where you live
1: well yeah i mean i've been a tour guide in lincoln since 1995 and um you know by then i was doing a lot of uh, guarding at the castle and i'd done some work with the international bomber command center on a few other bits and pieces as well. Really, when the I, I knew a lot of the crew of the Vulcan when it was flying on air displays, and it was only comparatively late on that I realised that you had a team of people showing um, everybody around the aeroplane. And I just wrote to Jim Debenham, the the guy who was organising it, and said, "Actually, I'm a tour guide down in Lincoln. I've flown the Vulcan. Would I be of any use to you?" And he said yes. Well, they would be absolutely daft to have said
0: no. Really, wouldn't he? Given your pedigree, <laughs> that is for sure. So, finally, just to uh, wrap it up, Malcolm, moving forward with five five eight, what are the three things that you would like to see happen with her?
1: I want to see her undercover, so that we can perhaps do a bit more engineering. I would like to be able to do more engine runs and in particular i would like to be able to do a high-speed taxi run because if you remember i mean even with the engines that we have at the moment which are downrated to 17 and pounds of the typical weights that we operate the airplane if we could sit on the end of the runway and stuff you know four times 17 and pounds out the back and let the brakes off it's quite an impressive sight and it's quite an impressive noise as well And the third thing is, if I absolutely had my way, and I can ever find enough time, and I'd have to probably go back to computing school to do it, I would like to create an electronic version of NBS, so that people could see how the system worked in the aeroplane.
0: Wow, that'd be something. That would be something, yeah. Malcolm, thank you very much for your time. It's been great speaking to you again. Okay, thank you very much indeed. All right, we'll see you shortly. You take care,
1: mate. Okay, cheers.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Into the Sky. We do hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to keep looking out for more episodes on the way. And if you'd like to find out more about the work of the Vulcan to the Sky Trust, or maybe if you'd like to make a donation to help safeguard the future of XH558, please visit the website vulcantothesky.org.